Russell Capital is an elite Ohio-based private equity firm with a specialization in long-term, high-cash flow, multifamily investments. If you're looking for long-term recurring income, you should check out Russell Capital. From their approach to managing risk, to the locations they invest, the product quality they provide, this firm is serious about what they do, which is why the owners of Russell Capital invest their money in every deal they take on. Review their case studies by visiting rustbeltcapital.com. That's rustbeltcapital.com. Once again, rustbeltcapital.com or email investor at rustbeltcapital.com. If passive income is your goal, is a value-add deal the best way to get that? Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. This is Brian Burke from Praxis Capital, and you are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm really excited today to have Evan Pulaski with us. He is Director of Investor Relations at Axia Partners, a diversified real estate operator focused on recession resilient asset classes. Evan has worked with various operators in the investor relations role for the last 17 years. He's a limited partner in multiple asset classes and deals and also owns rentals and helps out on some flips. Evan, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thanks for having me, Jim. Glad to be here. Yeah, the first question I always ask is just love to hear your journey. How did you get into real estate? How did you get into the, you know, being an operator, working for an operator in the uh, investor relations role? If you can just kind of give us your journey, we'd love to love to start there. Yeah. So as long as I can remember, I remember being fascinated by real estate. I grew up when I was very little, somewhere, well, moved there when I was six to suburban Atlanta, Marietta, Georgia, for any listeners that are down that way. Um, and seeing a Publix anchored shopping center go up near my, my subdivision and just again, being fascinated with there being raw land. And now there's like a shopping center that we shop at, at that Publix. Uh, obviously didn't know the financial component of it, but just always being, you know, office buildings, whatever it is, just if it's a physical asset being intrigued by it from a very young age. Um, fast forward into college years, originally thought I was going to be an engineer coming out of high school and going into college. As the saying goes, engineering C's turned into business A's and realized I just didn't like the engineering side of things. So transferred into the business program at the University of Cincinnati and actually had a coworker that was focused on real estate. I didn't even know that was a major at the time and kind of saw some of his coursework and just kind of piqued my interest because as noted, always interested in real estate. So transitioned to that. So I actually have my undergrad in business administration, but with a focus on finance and real estate as coming from the engineering background. Good with numbers, analysis, concepts like that. Uh, in terms of investor relations, that was a little bit of a luck of the draw. Um, I had a high school friend whose father was the co-founder of a retail operator. Uh, so as I was finishing up my college years and starting to look for a job, reached out to him and said, hey, just... Would you introduce me to your dad? Just trying to network, you know, of course I'm looking for a job, but you always pose it as that, that soft sell. And so he got me in touch with his dad and, you know, dad then talked to the HR person at his company, got me an interview. And the role they had was an analyst in what they called the fund development group as this company was starting to raise money in-house. Prior to that, 
um, you know, so that was the capital raising side. And then by default, when you're on the capital raising side, you're in investor relations because they go, as many investors may understand, hand in hand. You build the relationship. And like any business, repeat customers tend to be your your most fruitful customers and the ones that you don't have to sell over and over again. Uh, so you keep them happy. Hopefully they reinvest and, and kind of grew from there. Uh, one thing I always joke about and we might get into here a little bit later in the podcast is the thing I love most about investor relations is I have to know everything, but I don't have to do anything. And <laughs> obviously I do stuff, but what I mean by that is I don't have to be the property manager. I don't have to be the one negotiating with banks or negotiating with sellers uh, on the acquisitions team. I get to know that stuff and understand it because ultimately I'm going to translate it to investors, but I don't have to be the one in the, you know, in the trenches grinding it out in that same way that, that the specialists do that help every business run. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. And and so what I want to really dig into, because you, you know, you right out of college, it looks like you, you kind of got into investor relations and, and you've, you've been that in that role and with several different companies. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what, what is the actual role of, you know, we'll abbreviate it. The IR person is with, you know, investor relations. What is the actual role? How are you involved in deals and operations? Now you just kind of mentioned, you know, everything, do nothing. I know that was not exactly true, but you know, how involved do you get? Can you talk about the role and then where you come in as far as when they're getting a new asset and how do you learn about it? Just kind of the, the overview there. Obviously it's a team effort. You know, as, as I was joking, I, I do a lot of things, but it's a lot of translating back and forth. I play liaison and most people in my type of role do some form of the the same thing. So obviously with Axia and prior experiences, I'm dealing exact, I'm dealing directly with investors. So day in and day out, emails, text messages, email, uh, sorry, phone calls, getting to know them, getting to hear where their pain points are, getting to hear what they're looking for, um, you know, as we're in this current market, for instance, you're seeing a lot of deals where early year returns in real estate are very low, especially in the traditional value add, you know, and a lot of the people I believe in your, in your sphere are, are multifamily, are very heavily focused in multifamily because it tends to be the most, you know, visible option out there. Um, so if you're looking at a 4% return, which is what the property might actually be producing that first year, I'm the one having the conversation with investors saying, but I can get five and a half out of a T-bill or a money market right now. Why would I do this? And you're starting to play that. You're, you're hearing their pain points and communicating that over to the true general partners, the acquisitions teams, the finance team, you know, within the company, just kind of say, hey, here's, here's what I'm hearing. Here's where I'm going to potentially struggle raising money. And obviously the, the positive side is also here's our wins, you know, should we really be highlighting X that doesn't seem to be resonating with our investor group or should we actually be highlighting Y, uh, you know, depending on how those operations are going to, cause you know, all these operators, good and bad are doing some good things, you know, and it's finding those and understanding what their investor community really wants to hear. Um, so that's a lot of the day in and day out. Again, just maintaining that relationship, but there is a business development component to it in many areas. Uh, and whether that be, as I like to call it, internal sales, where you have a marketing machine behind the 
somewhere out there, you know, you see the Instagram videos just hitting you day in and day out as an LP. And that's causing you to then set up a call uh, with the investor relations person. Or in some groups, you know, you're actually just like a normal outside sales. You're actually out there trying to build the network, talk with your own contacts, you know, cold calling people, et cetera, to, to build that investor network. Because at the end of the day, I have yet to meet a syndicator who says, we've got enough money. Uh, well, I, let me rephrase that. There are definitely some out there, but they are not the ones that probably any of your listener group would hear about because they don't need money. Uh, they're the ones who can go to their existing networks and just, you know, raise the $50 million they need for their, for their upcoming acquisitions. And then how, how involved do you get in the actual deal? Like, do you go visit the property once it's under contract? Are you involved there or are you just kind of hearing what the, you know, the, the part of the team that's in the deal, they're relaying information to you so you can, you know, prepare the documents or not prepare the documents, but present that to the investors, I guess. Yeah, I've been on both sides of it. So it depends on how outward facing that specific IR person is. Um, I like to visit properties, you know, just personally, I like to see them. And, and as I've shared with your, with the members of left field in the past, like I invest in a lot of the deals that I'm, you know, seeing with groups I've worked with. The, um, so I, I do like to see the properties, but it's going to depend on the structure of the offering. Obviously a fund might be a little bit different. There might not even be properties to visit at the time that you're raising. In which case, they're you know I'm not traveling just to travel and, and see properties typically, um, and you know and it kind of there there's some nuance in like how involved on that side uh, an IR person might get. The other part of it too, again, especially with some of the bigger organizations, you know, you might be dealing with someone who's labeled investor relations, but they're just part of that sales funnel. Uh, I've heard of some groups that have. Literally just, what do they call them? Like business development consultants. So group A spends a lot of money on social media to create leads. Those leads come in. These, this first line defense is the you know, business development consultant or whatever they might want to call them. And they don't really know a lot about real estate. They don't really know a lot about um, the deals. They're more so just sort of vetting. Are you accredited? Let me get you on a call with our director of investor relations or VP of investor relations, somewhat, you know, some bigger title, uh, to then really start hammering into, into the nuances of the deal. Uh, and that's just a way to filter a lot of leads down to a limited, what I'll call true IR team, uh, with that kind of in between layer of a slightly lower skilled person to, to filter and help narrow that funnel to real investors. Um, you know, I would say in in most of my experience, I probably don't need to visit properties to sell them. Uh, oftentimes, the questions that you're getting day in and day out are going to be things that ideally are covered in the deck anyways that, you know, you might have some put in as an IR person, but it's mostly coming from the, you know, the acquisitions team. Here's Here's what this deal is all about. Uh, if that deck is well prepared, that should be an FAQ for probably 95 plus percent of the information that I need and would have to be inter, you know, translating to investors on a regular basis. Okay. And then you mentioned, you know, you, 
in your role, you're talking to investors lots here, answering lots of questions. What are you know some of the most critical questions investors should ask you? And then maybe also touch on what are some of the best questions that investors have asked you? Yeah, so I'll start with the second question first. Those are easier because I am an LP myself. So the ones that I like are... Um, the one that always stands out the most is how, if this deal performs as you are projecting, how much of the GP's return is coming from the carried interest versus how much is coming from the collective fees that should be collected? You know, acquisitions fees, asset management fees over the years, disposition fees. Um, as this, as an investor told me one time, and they asked that question of me, they're like, you know, we all understand that the GPs are in this to make money as well, but it helps understand that alignment of interest. If they want to be fee heavy, that's great. You know, in this, in my perspective and this other investor's perspective is if that fee money is, you know, that those earnings from fees are going to be 80% of the overall return to the GP. They're really a fee based operator. They're not like the carried interest is just, you know, meaningless at that point. Uh, not totally meaningless, but mostly. Now, if the fees are 15 to 25% of the total projected compensation, now there's a lot more in it from an overall compensation standpoint on the back end. Uh, that helps me as an LP feel better alignment, knowing that most of the money will still be coming from that back end. Um, so that's a big one I've shared in the past. Uh, how many of the how many of your employees are investing in this deal or typically invest in a deal from company Y? Because um, again, there's an expectation and rightfully so that the, the actual partners are going to be putting their own money into the deal. So, but they're also the ones that are likely going to benefit the lion's share of those fees and carried interest. It's the people like myself and the other employees of the company who are, are, you know, we have the choice to invest or not invest. There's no market demand saying, oh, your director of IR should be investing in every one of your deals. It's the GPs that should be investing. Um, you know, now it's somebody who can kind of see how the sausage is made and still choosing to go into that deal, knowing all the nuances and how the decisions are being made and why we're doing deal X over deal Y potentially. Um, so that's, those are kind of big two that I really like to see. Obviously, in today's market, reporting becomes more and more imperative. So I always make sure I can see not just the income statement, which is common from syndicators, but a income statement that goes at the partnership level, which includes debt service, asset management fees, you know, some of those fees that are beyond NOI, uh, but balance sheets and statements of cash flow. Again, business major, worked in this field a long time, understand how my first boss out of college was the former chief accounting officer before she moved into the capital raising role. Um, so she really taught me a lot of how the statement of cash flow flows into the balance sheet, and income statement, and, and what they're each reflecting. So I can decipher those a little bit more. But when you just get a P&L or an income statement, a lot can be hidden uh, that that get reflected on the other um, on the other key financial statements. Uh, so those would be kind of the, 
the big three. And now that I went onto that tangent, you asked me, that was the questions I like. Oh, what should question, what questions should people ask? Um, you know, I'm still a firm believer of track record, but obviously with today's market, you sort of have to treat that with a grain of salt. Um, and I compare it to what they're projecting on this current deal. So the track record is more so just, you guys have done this, you've performed in today's market with everything going on. I view it more as to compare apples to apples with other syndicators, not to compare it to themselves and say, oh, well, you're projecting a 15, but you've always got a 25 in the past. So I expect a 25. You're just being conservative. Uh, I ask for, you know, of course, sensitivity analyses and try to dig up what, um, you know, what historic averages have been back to some of that. We're coming out of a very robust market in 2021 and early 2022 and seeing a lot of changes. Uh, I'm also a big advocate that the term conservative is meaningless because if somebody, one group says, oh, we underwrite conservatively, we're expecting rent growth of 5% and someone else saying we're conservative, we're expecting rent growth of 8%. And in both markets, rent growth over the last three years was 20%. What's that mean? Yes, they're both being conservative, but one's clearly a little bit more conservative than the other uh, for some number of reasons. Um, and then the biggest one for me personally really comes down, this isn't so much a question, but it's really understanding what you expect out of this investment. And what I mean by that is the whole syndication world, at least a lot of it that I've lived in, has really preached passive income, passive income, passive income, build your passive income, you know, retire early, whatever that looks like. Um, and I think a lot of these groups, while are great operators, are getting, well, at least some are, are getting burned more so not because they don't have good assets that are ultimately going to return a pretty decent return, but they push the passive income so hard. And now that maybe some issues have arisen that distributions are paused, it's you know, you're just missing the the mark. They were marketing one thing. They're not delivering that, even though as an investment as a whole, they still have a good asset. That's probably going to turn around and do some good things here in the end of, at the end of the day. Um, so what I mean by that is really, are you truly about income? If passive income is your goal, is a value add deal the best way to get that? Because as we're all seeing, there's a lot of risks that come in with those renovations, with CapEx on older properties, with you know potential financing structures, of course. Um, or if you're really wanting income, you kind of need to forego some of that known appreciation. And would you be getting more consistent income out of a core asset? 2018 build, 6% annualized returns. Yeah, maybe it'll appreciate. It probably will over 10 year hold. But, you know, I, I think there's just kind of that, that true understanding, um, of what me as an LP, you as an LP are really looking for, um, and how, how you're really achieving that. And is there a lot of risk tied up in that, in how they're doing so? 
This is Zach Hapensall, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we've completed over $1.7 billion in total transactions, including 11 successful full-cycle dispositions. If you're looking to invest with an experienced sponsor in either the Phoenix, Arizona, or Dallas, Texas markets, then set up a call with us today at rise48equity.com backslash invest. That's R-I-S-E 48equity.com backslash invest. Investing in syndications can be a daunting task. Wiring a large sum of your hard-earned money to someone you talk to on the phone for 30 minutes can certainly be scary. How can you be confident in what you're doing? Steve Sue, one of the founders of LFI, just published a book called Avoiding Rookie Errors as a Left-Field Investor, 20 Lessons Learned from 14 Years of Investing in Private Syndications. This is by far the best book I've read on syndication investing. It's an easy-to-read book chock full of great advice from Steve's experience as a passive investor. It is a must read. Whether you're a first time passive investor or a veteran, go to www.leftfieldinvestors.com books and click on the link to avoiding rookie errors as a left field investor. If you are a passive investor, you got to read this book. I want to ask, you were talking about the fees mm-hmm. and, you know, I've heard a lot of operators recently talk about you know, obviously we want to have the GPs, the operators invest in their own deals, right? And a lot of operators now are taking their acquisition fees and that is their main investment into the deal. So how do we look at that as LPs? Does that still count as skin in the game if they're just taking the fees that that they're getting and, and investing it? Or should we expect more than just the acquisition fees to be invested? There's multiple factors to it. Um, I think... If it is a fee that you are signing on as an LP that's saying, like, I understand that Syndicator X is doing a lot of work to source this deal and get it closed, and they should be compensated for that, then, and you're saying, yes, I'm signing these documents, you have an acquisition fee, I understand why that's there and what it is and how much it's going to cost, then I'm all for it. Like, that is money they are effectively choosing to invest in that deal. Um, so it is kind of skin in the game back to actually, I've been talking about this. It's come up on several forums on bigger pockets recently and where I will have some, I guess, hesitance is the right term. It's not a deal breaker one way or the other, but when a syndicator says we're investing $400,000 into this deal, that's probably going to make us one of the biggest investors in the deal. Great. Get it? No big deal. And they're buying a $50 million deal with a 3% acquisition fee. Do the math. That's a $1.5 million acquisition fee. So they're selling you that I put 400K into this deal. And they did. You know, as I've seen it on the back end, they're writing checks. That is money leaving their bank account. And then the deal closes. And now they collect a check for $1.5 million. That doesn't feel as much like their skin in the game. Uh, so if they're fully putting their their acquisition fee in there, like to me, that that is skin in the game. Uh, it's when they're earning back their skin in the game by multiples uh, that, that it feels a little de- less, it feels a little disingenuous because they know they're what they're earning the day that deal closes. Uh, now, I also respect that I have a salary as a W-2 employee. Acquisition teams do. There's costs of running businesses that need to be covered. 
Um, so I'm not saying they can't make money. And, and as a, a young syndicator taught me, or was, I was talking to him many, he did his first deal in 2019. Uh, they closed November of 2019. So he was, he was shaking his boots when COVID hit. Um, turns out to have been all right. But he said, if I don't earn back my, my co-investment, so let's say I have a 1% acquisition fee on a $15 million acquisition. That's 150K. I invested 200K into the deal. I'm now 50K short. Is there skin in the game? 100%. Like no matter how you cut it. He's like, but I can only do so many deals before I just run out of money. And if you want me to keep investing, I have to be, have a source of income that's, that's replenishing my bank account for me to keep putting more money into the deal. So there is a balance there where, you know, if you're finding a good syndicator and you want them to keep doing deals, you gotta, you gotta, they have to make money somewhere. Uh, so that's why I say it's not a deal breaker, but it's just a data point that I look at. Right. And then is it, um, appropriate, I guess, because, you know, I, I feel totally comfortable asking the GP, how much are you investing in the deal? Are you investing in the deal? Mm -hmm. But when I'm talking to an investor relations person, is that an appropriate question to say, look, how much are the GPs investing? Yes, you'll answer that. Um, but then can I say, hey, Evan, how much is the IR team or how much are you guys investing or are you investing? Is that is that an appropriate yeah. question or is that a little bit too much to ask? It is. The reason I say it's too much to ask is not because I actually agree with that. There are real compliance rules. So I can't, I can tell you because I'm just the person who put the money in. Hey, Jim, I have 50,000 in that deal. Um, I can't, and I can kind of summarize, oh, you know, employees at this company, we've collectively got 600K into this deal. You know, so you can back into it. All right. There's maybe eight people or so, 10 people that are investing into this deal. Uh, but from a true compliance standpoint, you know, I'm not allowed to say, oh, Joe Smith, director of acquisitions, invested $150,000 into this deal. Like that's right. That's personal information that I just can't but, disclose. But you're, you're not offended if somebody asks you, are you investing in this particular deal uh, as the, I as am the not, investor relations person? Okay. I'm not ever invested. Now, one thing I will caveat with that, and there are different you know, exemptions. So everybody knows the five, most everybody knows the 506B, 506C, Reg A, but there's... 3C1, 3C5, and 3C7 offerings, which align, or they don't align, but you can use, you need two different exemptions. Some of those exemptions require that, um, you know, if you're doing a 506C, so it's accredited investors only, and it's a 3C7, I think, which is a real estate offering, real estate fund, that does not allow uh, directors of the company to invest even if they're not accredited. So like you do have to understand that, Hey, if we've got an administrative staff, let's say it's three GPs and a couple, you know, assistants, none of the employees are going to be able to invest more than likely because they're probably not accredited. And to maintain that exemption, they have to, uh, some offerings are, even if you're a five or six C directors are considered like sit outside of that because they're part of the company and they could invest anyways. Um, so there's some noise in that SEC side to, to not expect that 100% of the employees are going to be invested in any offering, but to have a, a steady flow of people that are pretty consistently investing within a company, I think, especially as it's a bigger company is expected and, and there should be some 
kind of casual ways of expressing that uh, that don't violate any SEC or, you know, uh, confidentiality type agreements. Okay. And then um, in, kind of in the beginning, you mentioned one of the things you like to look for is the sensitivity analysis. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you just explain to listeners, like, what is a sensitivity analysis and, and why are you looking at it? Yeah. So sensitivity analysis is just playing with the assumptions, for lack of better terms. Rent growth, you know, common, common big assumptions, cap rate sensitivity on the back end, uh, rent growth assumptions in terms of, especially if it's a value add, but even, you know, what happens if this deal stays flat for the next three years and only grows 2% rent for years, you know, four and five. Um, occupancy, the, on any deal that has a floating rate loan, I would expect there to be a interest rate uh, sensitivity all the way up to their cap. And as we're seeing, you know, caps, even if there is a cap, those can, the cost of those can still kind of make a deal feel like it's going sideways. Um, so you're not going to see everything, but there should be some kind of basic grids and basic assumptions as to, uh, you know, how far can this, this one variable, all else being assumed to stay equal, can move and things still are okay. Um, and again, since there are so many assumptions that could be made in terms of revenue growth, expense growth, interest rates, cap rates, um, you know, and then the nuances of each of those, you, you can't expect everything, but it's kind of just giving you that, that gauge of, all right, if they're off 10% on most everything, I'm probably not going to lose money. Uh, type of type of deal or type of assessment. And so when we're talking to a, a new operator, like someone new to us, and we're, how can an investor get, get comfortable during that first call with the, with the IR person? And how, how should they uh, prepare and approach that call? I started with the very, at the very beginning, you know, and I treated myself as an LP. I somehow find out about a syndicator, a gr- an investment operator, and I get on their website and I click learn more. If I don't get an email, because I mean, it's very simple to set up CRMs that have automated emails and Calendly links to make it possible for people to, to connect with that person. If I don't get any of that, that's a very big red flag that it's just like are not even worth my time. Um, so first and foremost, it's have they communicated when I sort of raised my hand and said, hey, I'm a person with money that is thinking of investing. You know, it's just the basic customer service side. Uh, from there, like I said, kind of understanding your goals. Are you more appreciation oriented? Are you more income oriented? And obviously making sure that they're, if you can't find out about the company, like know what kind of asset classes, what risk profiles, are you a fund or a one-off type syndicator? Um, you know, some kind of, I'll consider them high level. And then I start to just dive into, you know, track record to an extent. What, ex- you know, when I say track record, I don't necessarily mean what is Group X's historical returns on the 20 deals they've sold, because that may or may not exist. I'm an investor in a retail fund that I'm there. I'm in their second fund. Their first fund hasn't sold. But guess what? These are guys that have been in the retail space for 25 years or more. They have an, a, 
experience, a lot of experience, even though the company doesn't have that experience. Um, so trying to dive into that, and again, that's kind of nuanced. Is, it, is the company been around long enough to have a track record? In many of the syndicators that I see that I think are kind of in this sphere of influence, most have been around maybe since 2015. So what are those founders' experiences prior to 2015 or whenever the company is formed? I want financial crisis, professional experience, ideally dot-com bust, uh, real estate experience, you know, but now we're talking 25 year veterans, which don't, they have different ways of getting investors typically. Um, so I'd say those are the biggest ones, you know, and then you just dive into, into the deals, you know, simple things. What did you learn from a deal that didn't go the way you thought it should? Um, you know, how are you capitalized? You know, big one, how are you capitalized? What are your sources of capital? Because if, if deals don't go right, um, the, the scale of a company can certainly get them cheaper sources of capital than a smaller syndicator. Not to say a smaller syndicator couldn't either, uh, but just sort of understanding that. And, um, again, kind of a little more market or, relevant today but if i don't i won't ask this necessarily in the first call but understanding what happens if and particularly with capital calls um and again if i do ask that question i make sure to always confirm it in the documents before i write them because again i was just talking with somebody else uh, sharing that many ppms have indemnification clauses that say no matter what you were told, no matter what email correspondence you received, this document is the rules. So someone could say, hey, if, if a capital call is needed and you don't answer, you get diluted. Pretty common structure that is actually out there. Um, but somebody might answer that. You might call me and say, hey, you get diluted. But in the actual PPM, it says you default on your entire investment and therefore, it, you know, it goes back to the GP. I don't know, whatever that outcome might look like. And it doesn't matter what I said with those indemnification clauses. Typically that is, you know, that PPM is what is true and in writing, even if it was an email correspondence. So just trying to understand that risk as well. Yeah. Um, so I was talking to an operator recently and they, they said that, you know, they recommend you, yeah, talk to the IR person, but also talk to the principals operating the investment. Um, you know, because you want to really talk to the person that's going to be boots on the ground doing that. So I guess, do you recommend that? And and how does that work in practice? Because I know, like, especially operations that have, you know, the operator is separate from the IR person, you might not get to the operator. So can you kind of mm -hmm. address how you feel about that? This was a smaller operation. Um, so maybe it, it's different for smaller versus versus larger. Yeah, without being overly cynical, the syndicator isn't the boots on the ground most of the time. You know, who's really going to impact the investment the most is going to be the property manager and the leasing agent, the people who are doing the maintenance repairs and kind of choosing what's the most economical way to do it. And the leasing agent who's there to fill up the property. Um, and, you know, it seems like this is lost sometimes, but tenants paying rent is what pays investors distributions. Like there's a direct line. That's the only money that that exchanges hand. We sell. We as the owner, whoever that is, sells space to a tenant 
and they pay us money for that space. Um, so to a certain extent, I feel like, does it really matter? Now, on a smaller one, yes, it does. On a bigger one, you know, I've worked for probably what might be considered one of the larger syndicators within the general sphere of, of um, you know, of the people that are probably listening to this podcast. And they will make themselves available for investor conversations. But I also view it as an LP myself of when you build a company of that scale, the, the whole point of a founder is to you know, build a team around them so they don't have to do as much work <laughs> in all reality. You know, so the acquisitions guy is the one who's actually sourcing the deals. And yes, are the syndicator or the main sponsors going to sign off on that? Yes, presumably. Um, but I've worked for what is now a publicly traded REIT. You know, this is a company that when I start, this was the, my first job. We were raising institutional capital. Um, they are now, I was just looking up their market cap, $6 billion equity market cap company. The founders of that company aren't visiting every deal. They have teams of people below. They're not talking with every lender to secure financing. They have finance teams to do it. So there's a certain point of scale where it's like the founders aren't the one running the deals anymore. The, the team that they built around them are, and you get more specialists and specialists and specialists. So that's my long-ended answer. The short answer is if it's co-founders and one investor relations person, then I'd want to talk to the co-founders, you know, the partners. If there's a team of investor relations and a team of finance and a team in-house property management team with 300 employees, I'm not concerned about talking to the actual, like the syndicator themselves, the name behind it, because they become more of a figurehead than the actual person doing the work at that level. Okay. Well, th this has been fascinating, just really digging into the investor relations role. And before we go, we are kind of up on the time, but I do yeah. want to just ask you, you know, I know you're, you're new to Axia. Can you just tell, uh, tell us what is Axia doing? You know, what, what markets, what asset class? Just kind of give us a quick elevator pitch on Axia, if you would. Yeah. So Axia, as you mentioned, focuses on recession-resilient recession asset classes. So that means primarily multifamily industrial. We also have self-storage and some RV parks. So when I say RV parks, I don't mean mobile homes. I mean vacation destination type um, RV camper type type places. So um, we've done, we've got about $150 million of assets under management to date. Um, our, our biggest project that I'm really excited for is a industrial development deal in south of Salt Lake. Uh, so just a, a great area right on that 15 and 80 corridor. Uh, that's just a huge growth market. And as we all see, you know, Amazon boxes show up on a multiple days a week basis for probably many of your listeners and myself. Uh, we need more industrial, especially in those high growth areas. So focus on, on, uh, multifamily and industrial with some self storage and RV parks. We invest, you know, kind of in the mountain west because our offices are in Salt Lake. Uh, so Salt Lake, Idaho, um, but then look sort of through the, the growth markets of, um, I'll call it Sunbelt, but a little more, a little more narrow than that. Uh, and ultimately we are, 
opportunistic investors. So because we are a little more diversified, we do everything from value add to, um, to ground up development. And we do, we even have a few, um, like pref equity positions in with select operators out there, uh, that can really create some, some strong returns for our investors. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. And the last question I always ask is what's a great podcast that you listen to? Uh, as we were sharing before we hit record for entertainment purposes, I always love Conan. Uh, Conan needs a friend, uh, from, from more personal stuff. I've been on this kind of growth as a person, especially in my relationship with my wife and parents. So there's a podcast called man talks by Connor Beaton. Um, that's one of the top relationship podcasts. And that's been where I've been focusing a lot of my more personal growth side in terms of, uh, you know, just understanding what makes each of us, each of us and how to translate that to the world in an effective way. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And lastly, if listeners want to get in touch with you or learn more about what you do and what Axia does, what's the best way to do that? I always say LinkedIn. So it's linkedin.com slash, is it L, whatever little placeholder, Evan Pulaski, but just find me at E-V-A-N-P-O-L-A-S-K-I, as it says at the bottom of my screen. Uh, we'll connect on there. And, and depending on the source of the question or, or the information, I might direct you to a professional email or a personal email. We'll just chat that way or cell phone. Perfect. Well, thank you very much. It's been awesome having you on the show. We appreciate your time. Yes. Always great to talk with you, Jim. Thanks. Circuit City's trademarks were acquired and it was relaunched in 2018 with a fully online technology-focused strategy. It's an iconic brand with a rich history, now operating as a tech-driven e-commerce enterprise and steering clear of brick-and-mortar stores. Since its online revival, Circuit City has achieved over $130 million in revenue, is already profitable, and on a path towards a multi-billion dollar valuation. Circuit City Series A funding round is now open for accredited investors targeting an over 7x multiplier through a 2028 sale or IPO in U.S. capital markets. To learn more about this exclusive opportunity, visit invest.circuitcity.com. That's invest.circuitcity.com. Have a deal in mind and a group of investors ready to go? Use TribeVest to pool your capital together through a multi-member LLC. TribeVest has streamlined the group investment process, making it easy, quick, and safe to do business with others. Start a tribe and invite your partners to join. Then you can use the platform to collaborate with your partners, pool capital, and manage your joint investments. I'm in 12 tribes myself. It is a great way to learn from others, spread risk, and get into deals at lower minimums. Go to TribeVest.com to get started today. I enjoyed the conversation with Evan and just kind of catching up with him after he he did just change and uh, working for a new company now. And he's been in the investor relations role so long that I really wanted to just dig in, talk about that role and and ask all the questions I had about it. So I, I really got a lot out of there. And I loved how he opened up. And I know this was kind of tongue in cheek, but he said the investor relations person knows everything and does nothing. And certainly that isn't exactly true. But what he meant was, they get all the information about the investment. They don't necessarily go and they're not boots on the ground. They're not operating the investment, but they get all the information. So they're a really good person to talk to. Now, I always recommend talk to as many different people in the operation as you can. You're usually going to get on the, you know, talk to the investor relations person first. But if you have more questions, keep going, keep asking and see if you can get in touch with other people. I think that's a, never a bad thing. 
And then Evan talked about, you know, some of the best questions that he gets and the questions that you really want to make sure you're asking. And the first one was, you know, what are the fees versus the carried interest? And what he's looking for there is to make sure that, you know, if you're making all of your money on the fees as an operator, rather than making money on how the investment goes, there's going to be different incentives. So you want to make sure that the operators incentivized properly. And that goes into the next question, you know, how many employees, how many people at the company are investing in this deal? Because that also tells you if the IR person and, and some of the other people in the company, and, and as Evan said, you can't ask name for name who's doing it. But if you get an idea that there's a bunch of employees investing in this deal, they're eating their own cooking, right? So you, you got to think that's a, that's a good sign. It doesn't mean, hey, this is a great deal, but it's a, it's a good sign. And so you go with that. And then he said, you know, get full financials. Make sure you get the full income statement. Make sure you get the sensitivity analysis and make sure that you go through those. And, you know, if you're an infielder with left field investors, you can uh, throw all that stuff into our deal analyzer and, and kind of get some red flags and some things that other questions that you might want to ask the operator. So I fully uh, agree with that. And then, you know, again, back to the fees, uh, everyone was talking about make sure you understand the GP investment relative to the fees. And we we're talking about putting the acquisition cost or acquisition fees back into the deal. Well, make sure that it's all relative and makes sense, right? And that's part of the process. Um, when you're talking to the investor relations person, make sure that they explain the goals of the investment and the goals of, of the company as far as is this, you know, are they doing value add? Are they doing development? Are they focusing on cash flow? Are they focusing on appreciation? And make sure those goals match your goals. Now, that seems like a logical thing that everyone would do. But I can tell you, when I first started out, I just got super excited about, oh, they're talking about this deal and this deal, you know, and all the reasons why their deal is great. And sometimes I would forget, wait a second, this the the this deal doesn't match the goals that I have, right? I have I don't have a W two, so I need cash flow. This was a development deal. Well, there might be a place for that in my portfolio, but I got to make sure that I don't get so excited about the deal that I forget where it fits into my portfolio, and that's super important. But I really enjoyed talking about the role of the investor relations person. I've talked to a bunch of these people. I haven't interviewed them on the podcast, but I don't think I've ever really dug deep into what the role is and, and really asked all those questions. So I really appreciate Evan uh, chatting with me about that. And, and hopefully you guys got something out of this too. So that's all we have for this time. We'll catch you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestor.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcast would be appreciated. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.